Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser. I'm the editor of the Retinal Physician Magazine, and I'd like to welcome you to the Retinal Physician Podcast. I'm joined today by one of my wonderful friends, Yasha Modi. Yasha is at the NYU Langone School of Medicine, where he is an associate professor and director of Teleretina. And Yasha, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. And it's uh, always great to chat with you, Peter. So Yasha, I thought today for our listeners, what we're going to do is discuss the treatment of non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy in the absence of diabetic macular edema. So in other words, can we improve patients' diabetic retinopathy and, and how can we do that? Yeah. So, I mean, those are all really, really great questions. And you know, it highlights one of the major controversies in our field right now. And, you know, we've, this is sort of falling on the backs of some incredible data through Protocol S, where we saw a benefit to anti-VEGF therapy for treatment of proliferative diabetic retinopathy, with the primary outcome being sort of regression of diabetic retinopathy, so severity scales. And there is now a lot of data sort of looking at this question in non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And the good news is we've got level one evidence uh, in the form of panorama, as well as protocol W that asked this very same question. Yeah, I think this is interesting because we, we now have two FDA approved products uh, in this space, yet when you really go and look at some of the numbers and the use of anti-VEGF for the treatment of diabetic retinopathy, um, it, it, it's remarkably low compared to obviously diabetic macular edema, where, where obviously uh, the, the use is very high. What, why do you think that is? What, what is it that's keeping patients from receiving this treatment? Well, I think it depends on, well, what's your, what's your endpoint and what, what, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Are we trying to make the pictures look prettier? And is that, that being the measure of diabetic retinopathy severity scoring? Or are we trying to prevent severe complications, which may or may not develop anyway, assuming we're following them closely? Or are we trying to improve vision? And so there's three potential outcomes. And I think because, you know, when there's a, a much clearer rationale for why we use it in diabetic macular edema. They come in, they have blurry vision, you're then administering a medication, which improves their vision, and you have an anatomic correlate to follow them. And deep diabetic retinopathy, we just don't have that sort of linearity that makes it a very easy algorithm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're not talking about mild, moderate, and even early severe. We're talking about the very severe, the patients who you may do an ultra-wide field fluorescing on and see massive amounts of peripheral ischemia. Uh, maybe their other eye is done poorly. These, these are the patients who you start to, to worry about and, and consider for this treatment. Wondering, you know, what are the use scenarios for you in your practice uh, in terms of when you would use, say, an anti-VEGF agent? Well, I think those are really, really great questions. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I think now it's kind of a conversation with patients. You know, there is this FDA-approved treatment, and uh, there's no specific label as to what degree of diabetic retinopathy that that would be applicable to. But what we're looking at is, and what's been studied is sort of something that we don't use in clinical practice, which is the DRSS, of moderately severe to severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which is numbers 47 to 53. Now, anyone who doesn't do clinical trials, this means really nothing to them. But suffice it to say, we can say anyone with severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, 
this is a conversation that we're now having in the office. So when you look at basically the latest, latest data that has come out, especially for some, for a flibercept, um, you know, it gives you some thoughts that maybe there are patients that would benefit from this treatment. I thought maybe go over a little bit some of the recent data uh, from Panorama uh, and other studies that may change our opinion about when we should use this product. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, a big part of this is this is sort of kind of what we have right now is the framework to guide our decision making in clinics. So when we think about Panorama, there were really three arms to the study. The first arm was essentially receiving monthly loading doses for about five total uh, doses. And then patients were in a every eight week injection arm. Then there was another arm where patients were receiving essentially three monthly loading doses at one eight week injection cycle, and then were pushed out all the way out to 16 weeks. And then in the third arm, they were just receiving sham injections. And this was a pretty sizable study. It's about 400 patients in this study. And what they were looking at was the proportion of eyes that had a regression of at least two steps by the diabetic retinopathy severity scale. And the numbers were pretty impressive. Essentially, you had about a half to two-thirds of patients who had a two-step improvement relative to only about 15% for sham. And so the other thing that I think was really noteworthy was when we think about vision-threatening complications, basically neovascularization in the form of PDR or neovascularization of the anterior segment or a center involving diabetic macular edema, the number of vision-threatening complications was considerably lower in those receiving anti-VEGF versus those receiving sham. And that's sort of one of the real values. There's a practical value in anti-VEGF therapy in the sense that it prevents severe complications. Now, when you sort of talk to a patient about using this treatment, I'm very interested because in Cleveland, as you know, our, some of our patients uh, we know are not going to come back. And, and, and these are the patients who, who probably aren't the best candidates. Um, so is there sort of a pedigree, a type of person that you're looking for? And, and then if there is, sort of what's your discussion that you have with them uh, to ensure that this treatment works? Yeah, you know, that's that's a, the most important thing, right, is that this is about consistency. So, you know, the person who I'm looking for, and I actually say this to my patient, I'm like, you are Mr. Reliable or you are Miss Reliable in the sense that you are coming in on a regimented basis to get these treatments and you recognize that you're here specifically for the treatment. And so if you're missing treatments, you know, and we can talk a little bit about what happens when we don't give anti-VEGF after we've given anti-VEGF in the past, uh, because there's some interesting data there, we know that those patients are at considerable risk where, you know, all that great data that we see in these clinical trials is no longer applicable. And so those are patients I'm particularly worried about who have now gone on to have potentially vision-threatening complications. Uh, and I'm always, always concerned about those patients. So if there's ever a situation where they may or may not uh, come back, those are patients where I may repeat an FA, they may have progressed to PDR, and I would strongly consider uh, following up with a PRP at that time. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of this treatment is it, it, we don't necessarily, uh, as long as we have good follow-up, we don't necessarily lose anything. We, we gain from improving their diabetic retinopathy, which likely 
improve obviously their macular edema. So the likelihood of developing macular edema is very low. But if the patient uh, shows any signs of progression or any issues, we, we have other treatments we can jump to uh, immediately. Uh, I'm curious, you know, if you have a patient on anti-VEGF therapy, uh, sort of what's the longest interval you'll allow them to go uh, before you start to worry? So I think there's uh, the longest interval for me is it, uh, you know, I now have data essentially both from Panorama and Protocol W supporting the use of up to every four month injections, basically every 16 week injections. So I'm, I'm sort of a purist. I think you know that from uh, when I was in, in Cleveland and uh, I sort of try my best to stick to the books uh, because I think there's, there's strong evidence supporting that. So uh, I'll go up to every four months, but frequently, I think it's sort of a slow progression. I kind of like the way Protocol W ramped up their interval, almost like kind of in the equivalent of like a treat and extend window uh, versus the sort of um, uh, in Panorama, it was much more defined interval comparing eight to 16 week treatments. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Uh, to me, I, you know, when I use this treatment, I, I, I do use it in these patients with very severe, especially with extensive peripheral non-perfusion. Four months is the maximum I'm going to go. Um, and I, I really try to focus on the patients who are, who are going to be successful uh, in this treatment, in this therapy. And, and, you know, some of the best use scenarios are patients who've received PRP in their fellow eye and have developed some of the complications from PRP. I find those are the patients who are saying, look, you know, I lost some peripheral vision. My night vision isn't as good. And that eye you... You did that laser in, if there's anything that you could do, those are the ideal patients in my book. Uh, and those are the patients who I find are there every every three, four months, uh, like they're supposed to be to, to receive their therapies. And it, and it, and it works very well. Yeah, I, I, I totally, totally agree. But, you know, the one thing that I do, which I think is also built into Protocol W and Protocol S that we don't, oh, sorry, uh, and Panorama that we don't talk about, is getting repeat ultra-wide field FA. You know, from Protocol W, to just shy of 15% of people had progression to PDR while they were in the aflipercept group. So it's really important to realize that this is not a slam dunk that you're going to put them on a protocol. And if they are very reliable, even if they are very reliable, it doesn't indicate that they're going to do, you know, perfectly on this treatment. So being, you know, doing keen assessments when they're coming into the door, making sure that they haven't progressed and then confirming that, you know, every six months with the ultra wide field FA is sort of my practice at the moment. I couldn't agree more. You know, for me, non-proliferative disease is, is a really interesting area to be treating because theoretically, if, if let's you know, say in the future we have a very long-acting anti-VEGF, maybe even gene therapy, you know, this is the way to, to really almost cure a patient, if you would. If, if you could have do this long enough, their chance of going on to proliferative disease is dramatically reduced, which is where we see most of the blinding complications of diabetic retinopathy. So it's an exciting time. You know, if you had your crystal ball 10, 15 years from now, sort of how do you think we'll be treating these patients? You know, I think we already know that there are longer acting drugs in the pipeline. There's gene therapies, which can basically deliver a anti-VEGF in perpetuity, as you had mentioned. Um, 
I sort of see that there's going to be a pharmacologic solution to this problem as opposed to a laser solution, which has been around for decades and is tried and true. Uh, but it is really important to realize that we have no drugs that currently alter non-perfusion with clear consensus. Uh, you know, so these patients can have progressive non-perfusion, which is even though you're suppressing the protein, VEGF, which uh, causes a lot of these complications, the driver of VEGF is non-perfusion itself. So we still haven't really got at the core uh, problem of what is uh, causing these complications. And that puts us, uh, you know, this sort of forever onus on us to continue with these treatments in the in the foreseeable future next five, 10 years. Well, it's been truly a pleasure, Yasha, speaking with you today on the Retinal Physician Podcast. I hope our listeners enjoyed uh, the topic today and, and look forward to having you join us at a future Retinal Physician Podcast. Well, well, thank you so much for the invite. And it's always my pleasure talking to you.